Alrighty. Well, good morning, Fellowship Bible Church. It is such a joy uh, to be with believers, the family of God, the same God um, amongst all the world we can gather um, and worship this same God, uh, bought by the same blood, Jesus Christ, and we can open the same scriptures together. So I'm so excited to be here. Like Tony said, my name is Jason, and I'm really happy to open God's Word with you and look at this encouraging book of First John. We'll be in chapter 3, and I really hope that you found this book helpful um, throughout the summer, that you, that you find that it strengthens your faith It encourages you. It puts courage in you because that's exactly John's purpose. He says that in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us without a doubt to be confident that we're Christians and that we have eternal life. And in a shaky and shifty world, that's good news. And so in this letter, he keeps laying out these three tests of genuine faith. Um, You guys have talked about them in in previous weeks, but I just want to quickly review them here so that we may know that we have eternal life, fellowship with God, that we know that we walk in the light as he is in the light. So first we have the the moral test or the obedience test. Here's how John says it in 1 John 2, 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, genuine believers obey God and his commandments. Second, we have the the theological test, the doctrinal test, or simply the belief test. Here's John's word again. Um, Second chapter, 22 through 23. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So in other words... Genuine believers believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then finally, which is most in our text today here, we have the love test or the affections test. 1 John 2.9 says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And a few, few verses later it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, genuine believers love God and love his children, not the world. So here we are in in 1 John chapter 3, and these tests have already been laid out in earlier chapters, and now he's revisiting this love test that he queued up in 1 John 3.10, which was preached last week, but let me read that for us. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so he has already brought up this love test. And so the question before us is why does he bring it up again? He's already made it very clear that it's believers that love the family of God. They love the brothers, not the world. And so our job today is to find out what's this new sense that John is is adding in here by bringing this up yet again. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read that passage one more time. 1 John 3, 11 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. If you guys would pray with me one more time. Father God, we thank you for this word. You have given us this word to encourage us and to give us life. And I pray that that you would use it to shape us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned that we were trying to see what's this new sense of love that John's bringing out. And as I think about this word love, I can't help but think of this time. I was in middle school, and I remember someone um, saying, I hate this. And they were sitting in a class, I'm pretty sure it was math class, uh, which, funny enough, I'd, I'd later go on to become a math teacher. I certainly didn't know that then. But anyway, they said, I hate this, and I said... Well, hate's a really strong word, so why do you got to say it? And, and she said this, I'll never forget this, in a profound moment of middle school brilliance, she said, well, love is a really strong word too, but people say it all the time because they don't know what it means. Interesting, I thought. And that's, that stuck with me. And it's both of these strong words, the love and the hate, that John brings up in this passage today, with love being more of the main focus And so we're going to see in this passage the beginning of what love really means, what it looks like, and what it does. And that is, giving love gives life. Giving love gives life. We'll see this giving love gives life to the family of God in 11 through 18. And then 19 through 24, we'll see that this same love gives life to us. So first, giving love gives life to the family of God. Verse 11 gives us this command to love one another. And elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told to love our enemies and love our neighbors. But here, John is bringing up that we are to have a specific love for the family of God, for the brothers. And it says this is from the beginning, and this comes from Jesus, who says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's John 13. And to describe what this love looks like, John doesn't start with a positive example of of what it looks like, but starts with a negative. 
And he references Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And this story highlights what lack of love looks like. Um, So feel free to just listen. I'm going to read this passage from Genesis 4 to bring us up to speed on, on Cain and Abel. It's Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. It's tempting to think that the reason Cain is angry is just because he gets rejected by God But we'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we're not told absolutely everything, but it's clear here that Cain knows what to do, what he should have done, what he can do, and he's told by God. But let's see what he does. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And what, what a tragic story here. We're only in the fourth chapter of the whole Bible. It's just right after the fall, and it thus highlights the wickedness of the whole world. Not just Cain, um, of so many in the world. And so why was Cain so angry? I said it wasn't because he was rejected by God, but our author John helps us with verse 12, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Remember, Cain knew what to do, and he didn't do it. And he was told by no one less than God. And he rejected God, and he disobeyed, while his brother Abel loved God and obeyed God. And so Cain was envious in a way and resentful of his brother, and he lacked love, and he took life. And if this idea of someone evil killing another because they are righteous is a bit of a surprise to you, this happens throughout the Bible, most notably of Jesus Christ himself. He was the very Son of God, and he loved God. He loved and he cared for people. He was completely sinless but he was hated and rejected and crucified by the religious leaders in the crowds, the very people he loved and came to save. His works were evil. Sorry, sorry. Christ's work were righteous. Theirs were evil. That's why they hated him. And so remember what Jesus warns us, after all. He knew that he would be killed by them and hated by them. And in John 15 says this, If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so this is exactly where John, our author, goes here in this letter. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that this world hates you. Not that we're absolutely perfect and sinless, but we're obedient to God out of love 
for him, whereas the world does not love God and certainly does not obey God. And so that's why the world hates us. So our works are righteous and God-centered, whereas theirs are not. And if I could just say, before we, we go on here, let's make sure that this is the reason that the world hates us. Not because we're obnoxious or unkind or lacking compassion or just hypocritical all the time, but because we love God and obey God. So much so that we're caring, we're patient, we're kind, we're compassionate, and we're fully aware of our shortcomings. Let's let that be the reason why the world hates us. And so John has a purpose here with this negative case of Cain, this demonstration of the lack of love. And it becomes much more clear when we look at verse 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John's drawing this clear line in the sand. On one side is those that hate the brothers, and then on the other side are those that love the brothers. Those that do not have life, and those that do have life. They have crossed from death to life. And so it's so tempting when we read a passage like this with language so strong like this, like everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And we think of ourselves and maybe our neighbors, we think, oh, I surely don't hate anybody. They surely don't hate anyone, certainly not to the point where they're a murderer. But you may have caught an echo here that that John makes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He he says that, that God looks in the heart, and when we have anger, towards a brother, he likens it to murder. And similarly, John here, he links hatred and murder. And a helpful commentator um, that I read said, hate can simply be the wish that the other person was not there. And so that helps us see John's link between hatred and murder. And John here also describes what hate is in verse 14, and it's a pretty stark definition. Verse 14, he just simply likens hate to be not love. It is these people that don't love that John's saying do not have eternal life and that they remain in death. And so keep this idea in your minds because John will come back to this and so will we in a few verses. But to summarize what John's getting at here, those who do not love the family of God do not have eternal life. Those who lack love lack life. And then, on the other side of that stark line in the sand, that John states that those who give love to the brothers have passed from death into life. Or to use his terminology earlier, those who love the family of God have gone from walking in darkness to walking in the light as he is in the light. But we still don't quite know what John means by love both what it is and what it does. Let's go ahead and get there in verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so notice John doesn't say, this is how we know the love of God. He simply says, by this is how we know love. He lets God define what love is through what Christ did for us, laying down his life. And this is the ultimate definition of love. Christ himself says this, Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. Even more so, consider this from Paul, but God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus defines what love is by giving his life for us. Therefore, at the heart of love is the action of sacrifice. And it's with this love that we are given life and salvation. And so we are told to do likewise in verse 16, to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the family of God. And few of us will likely be in a position where we literally have to give our lives for the sake of someone else in the family of God. But certainly it's possible Jesus loved us this way, but to say that he only loved us in this way is a mistake. I think of first, uh, sorry, I think of Philippians 2, just after Paul tells the readers there to look not to their own interests, but the interests of others, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus here loved us so much that he set aside what could be and what should be his. He gave his time. He gave his energy. Not to mention he he provided for the tangible needs in addition to people's spiritual needs. And so this love of Christ is a giving love. And it's this very giving love that gives life to us people of the household of God, the family of God. So Christ giving love, which is to say Christ giving love, gives life. And so Christ calls us to love the family of God in these same type of ways too, when we see their needs and have the ability to meet them. And this is exactly where John goes in 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And so earlier I mentioned that we would come back to this idea of hate, which is lack of love. And verse 17 describes this very thing, where they see their brother in need, and they have the ability to meet them, but they close their heart towards the brother. And Jesus illustrates this best, I think, in Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, something I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with. So you remember there's a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's um, mugged, he's beaten, um, things are stolen, and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And so then we have a priest who sees the guy and then walks on the other side of the road. And then we have the Levite do the exact same thing, sees the guy and walks on the other side of the road. Presumably, by the way Jesus tells this story, they could have been the ones to meet his needs. But they see his need and they close their hearts to him. And in our passage, in verse 17, it asks, how can God's love abide in him? And the answer, of course, is it doesn't. And those two people They hated the man, and they are still in death. But surely the priest and the Levite wouldn't say that they hated him, certainly not to the point of murder, but at the same time, they don't love the man by providing for his need when they see it. 
And so John would say that, that those two characters, and anybody who does this, they lack love and they lack life. And so then, of course, there's the Samaritan who saw this man in need and did not close his heart towards him. He stopped to bandage the wounds, loaded him on his own animal, paid for him to stay at the inn and receive more care when he would come back for him. It's this man that loves in the way John is describing. And when we love in this way, it comes with a cost. It took the Samaritan time to do this. He wasn't likely joyriding in the desert, but he had to set aside whatever he was doing to love this man. Certainly, we could call that inconvenient, if not more. He likely faced discomfort as he bandaged this man's many wounds and took him with him. He risked people looking at him in a judgmental sort of way as he brought this man to safety. And it certainly took money to pay for his way in the end, and perhaps, too, it cost him money by delaying whatever he was going to do. So it was a costly love. But it's this giving love that gave life to that man. And it's this kind of love that John is saying believers have and should pursue, especially toward the family of God. And so this, this love is extremely practical. It's extremely tangible. And it requires us both to see the need and the ability to meet it. So certainly there are times that we just simply do not see needs. John is not expecting us to meet them here. And there are other times where we see the need and we really don't have the available resources to meet that need. But let's be very slow of, of when we say that, that we can't meet the needs. But, but John is saying that it's seeing the need and the ability to meet the need that we should do this. And I was so encouraged. This, this last week I was here, I was, I was with Kyle and his family as, as he um, preached from the first set of verses from 1 John 3. And you guys heard of a very need in this very congregation. And without hesitation, you came up around Mel and Shelley and you prayed for them. You saw their need for prayer and you met it. And I can only assume, especially just with what Tony said, that there will be several different kinds of needs that they have in the future weeks and future months that encourage you to try to meet. So certainly they might need and appreciate meals, um, rides, financial assistance, and maybe an extra set of hands around the house to help get things done. But if I may say, perhaps it might be company that they would need and appreciate, or a phone call, perhaps stopping by, being with them an hour or two, reading the scripture with them, praying with them, playing a game, doing a puzzle, reading a book, or something like this is what they might need. And so perhaps you can think of other ways to give them love. And I have no doubt that there are other needs in this congregation that need attention in time and energy and in tangibility. And it is this kind of love that John calls us to. And it's this kind of giving love that gives life. It meets the needs of the family of God and it brings encouragement, joy, comfort, life for the needy soul. Giving love gives life. And this is what 1 John 3 is calling us to do. And so when we love the brothers, the family of God like this, it gives life to the needy soul, and God uses it to meet the needs 
of his children, which is so sweet. But this, this is God we're talking about, and his commandments are good. And so certainly he has good in store for the family of God. But in this second half of the text, John wants us to highlight even more of the goodness of God, that God would use this giving love that gives life to the brothers to also give life to ourselves. And in God's economy, both happen at the same time. So this is, this is verse 19 here. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And there are times when our hearts condemn us. There are times we doubt if we truly love God. There are times that we question if we really have eternal life. We question if Jesus Christ has really forgiven ourselves. And we doubt if God has really accepted us into his family after all that we've done. But John seems to suggest here that that that's not that uncommon, and it's not all that rare and infrequent, and he means for us to have assurance. And maybe this doubt and these questions, they arise from false teachers who say, you must do this, or you must not do this, and it causes our hearts to question. And that's why John's writing to address these false teachers, or perhaps we know that God calls us to love the brothers, and we just know that we're not all that good at it, especially when Christ sets the bar so very high. But John is writing to address these doubts. He wants our hearts to be assured. God does not want us to struggle and be burdened with these doubts. He wants us to have life. So then, John says in verse 19, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. But by what? He says by this. And it's by what he just said above, that do we love the brothers? Do we see their need and close our heart towards them? Do we see their worldly needs, but we, in love with the world, withhold from them those very needs? Or do we see their needs and rise to meet them? John's whole argument is that Christians love God and love the people that God loves more than the world, and so they're willing to give up the things of the world to meet the brothers, the family of God. And the world doesn't love like this, not in this sacrificial way. And certainly, there are times where they they really seem to love and, and care for others, and sometimes even they seem to care for Christians, but John is saying that when push comes to shove, in time, they will not do this. And it is this fact that reveals that we are of the truth when we give love and give life to the brothers. And by doing so, it gives life to our own needy souls and gives us assurance. But with that, there's still some subjectivity Involved in John nor God wants us to simply leave us to our own thoughts, and that's why verse 20 is there. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And you can kind of picture here we have a bit of a court scene, right? You're on trial, and your heart is next to you, accusing you before the Almighty God who knows everything. And there are certainly times when our heart accuses us. And it's right. There is unrepented sin that we have that we need to confess. And that's exactly what John says in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
But here, John's talking about when our heart makes an accusation against us, it's condemning us, and it's simply not true. And God, being greater than our hearts, he overrules it, and he silences the condemnation of our hearts. He knows everything. He knows all of our sin, all of it. But he knows our true heart and our true allegiance is to him. And he declares us not guilty because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I think back of the reminder we have in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to, to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when our heart wrongfully condemns us, we have Christ who is our advocate before the Father, not our accuser. And furthermore, God also gives us his very spirit to let us know that we abide in him and he in us. That's verse 24. We'll talk more about the spirit um, next week in chapter 4. But notice how it's God the Son, the Father, and the Spirit that are on our side. They want us to be confident. They want us to have assurance before God. And this leads us to confidence before God, that's verse 21, which in turn leads us to have our prayers answered in verse 22. And we know that our prayers are answered because we keep his commandments. It's verse 22. And then 23 tells us that some of those commandments are to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. And so it's at this point, if we haven't quite got it already, that John is weaving all three of these tests the, the do you obey, do you believe, and do you love. He's weaving them all together, and these three tests go hand in hand, and they're like a three-legged stool that if you take out one leg, the whole thing falls. You must have all three to abide in God, and God abide in us. And it's when we do this that we have confidence before God and have our prayers answered. And so some of us, when we read that verse 22, we begin to get nervous and a little bit taken off guard because it looks like that verse can just simply be applied to the prosperity gospel. But it's when we're abiding in him, when we're doing his commands, that we find our prayers answered. It's because when we're abiding in him that we're asking for things in line with his will, these are the prayers that God is eager and ready to answer. And so we'll close with this last example from Christ who seems to always illustrate these things best. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was praying to the Father saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But ultimately, here's his prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it's these type of prayers that seek first what God wants above what we want, that God is more than willing and able to supply what we need to do God's will and follow him. And that's exactly what we see in that very next verse in Luke 22. When Jesus is praying, it says, There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So Jesus was strengthened, then go and do the very will of God, which would end up giving his life on the cross for our sins. That is giving love to give us life. Life for those in death. Life for those who hate. Life for those who murder. Life for the needy soul. 
which is all of us, before we receive Christ. If you have not put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ and received life, I urge you to do so today. I know Brian and and Tony would be more than, than willing to talk after the service about that. And so Jesus also calls us to love him, calls us who, who love him to also love the family of God as he does, with and by giving love that gives life, life to the family of God and life to our own needy souls. Let's pray together. Father God, what a wonderful thing it is that we are called children of God. Would you help us to live and be marked as your children? Father, help us to love like your Son, Jesus Christ, and obey his commandments. Help us to love the family of God. Thank you that in your goodness, you use giving love to give life to the needy souls, both those of the family of God and to ourselves. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.